First Peter chapter one. We started a couple of weeks ago uh, a study in the book of First Peter, and we'll see how far that takes us and how long it takes us to get through it. Today we're going to look at verses two through twelve. I want to speak to you on the topic of who we are and what we have. I want to say thanks to Josh for preaching last Sunday. Heard good things about that. Praise the Lord. And thank you all for praying for us as we had a little break heading down south. So, First Peter chapter 1. Let's go ahead and begin reading in verse 1 just so we get the flow, but then we'll read down through verse 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, Though now you do not see him yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves... But to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Well, let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. Thank you, Lord, for this book of 1 Peter. And I pray as we continue now uh, in this study of this book, I pray you'll guide and direct, fill me with your spirit. Help me, Lord. With some of these topics, some of them are hard topics here today, and so help me with that. And uh, may I be clear, and may I be accurate. Lord, help me to be accurate, and may I be practical. And I pray, Lord, you'd fill us all with your spirit that we might hear. Give us ears to hear today. Father, this is the word of God. It's not my word. It's not the church's word. It's your word. And so I pray today we would receive it as such. Allow it to change us, wash over us, cleanse us. And uh, make us more like we ought to be. So guide and direct, we pray, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Muhammad Ali once shared his thoughts on his training regimen. I don't remember who had asked him this. Somebody had asked him about it. And his response about it was this. He said, I hated every minute of training. But I said, don't quit. Suffer now and live the rest of your life as a champion. There is a sense in which Peter was saying something quite similar to his readers. He said that when you know who you are, when you have, uh, and what you have both now and in the future, you can get through any temporary trials or troubles 
in this life. Even if now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, as he said in verse number six, you can rejoice. This passage, which is which is one long sentence in the original Greek text, is just a wonderful description of who we are as Christians and what we have as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And why that brings us hope, even in the midst of suffering. Let's just, 100,000 100, foot view, let's just fly over this right now and notice who are we. Notice what it says. It says we are chosen, verse number 2. We are begotten, or born again, verse number 3. We are heirs, verse number 4. We are kept, or protected, verse number 5. That's who we are. What do we have? We have hope, verse number three. We have an incorruptible and undefiled and unfading inheritance, according to verse number four, that is reserved in heaven for us. I love that part of it. That's one of my favorite parts of the whole passage. We have joy, verse number six. Yes, we have trials. And yes, we have testings, verses six and seven. But also we have the joyful assurance of salvation through faith, verse number nine. And we even have knowledge, understanding that the prophets and even the angels of God do not have. So let's just break that down a little bit. And uh, we won't hit all of them fully, but we'll hit a few and uh, touch on all of them. First of all, notice we are chosen. We are chosen. Verse number two, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Elect according to the foreknowledge of of God the Father. Or as another translation puts that, uh, you are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And of course, that word elect simply means chosen. This verse teaches that those of us who are saved were chosen by God. Other verses teach the same truth. Uh, for example, Ephesians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Now that's Ephesians chapter 1. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God, from the beginning, chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Look over at... Uh, Chapter 2 and verse number 9, and you'll see that in this book here, Peter mentions it again. Chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Chosen. Clearly, these verses and, and this text teach that God chose those who are saved. It also includes another interesting detail about that choosing, pointing out that we were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, many interpret that to mean that God knew who would respond to the gospel, and they are the ones he therefore chose to save. He had foreknowledge of their response, and therefore those are the ones he chose to save. That being the case, if that's true, uh, he knew that on May 3, 1970, 12-year-old Billy Johnson would uh, believe the gospel, and uh, therefore he chose to save him. Hmm. Others, of course, say that is not correct, that God's choosing was absolute, based on no merit whatsoever. And so God chose 
Billy Johnson, with absolutely no, had nothing to do with whether or not I believed or not. It was entirely a matter of his sovereign choice. I mean, we do believe, don't we, that God is absolutely sovereign. We do believe that he knows all from eternity past, that he controls all from eternity past. I mean, we do believe that, right? One author explained it like this. He said, in other words, with infinite power and infinite wisdom, God has from all eternity past decided and chosen and determined the course of all events without exception for all eternity to come. And we really do believe that. Some take it so far as to teach that salvation is completely predetermined, that God has chosen some for salvation, and then the opposite conclusion has to be that God has chosen some for damnation. And if Jesus' words are correct, and I'm certain that they are, Jesus said that there are few there be that find salvation, many that do not. Of course, others wonder, and I would be one of them, about the verses in the Bible that describe the importance of believing and the importance of personal responsibility and the importance of free will and Choosing and trusting Christ. What do we make of verses like John chapter 3 and verse number 16? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That certainly sounds like there's a part my belief plays in this equation. How about John 5.24? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, he that heareth my word and believeth on Him that sent me hath everlasting life shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death unto life. How about Acts 16.31? Philippian jailer asks Paul, what must I do to be saved? And he said in Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. And what about Romans chapter 10 and verse number 9? If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart... Man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What, what do we make of verses like that? What do we make of verses like Revelation 22 and verse 17? Then the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. I confess, confession time, but this is one of those places in the Bible uh, that I can't totally get my mind around. I can't understand fully the mind of God here. The Bible teaches both truths. And here's what that means. That means both truths are true. God chose. The Bible teaches that. It's true. He elected. It's clearly taught in the Bible. Along with that is this truth. A man or a woman must believe. We must confess. We must seek salvation. We must receive Christ as our Savior. Both truths, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, are equally taught in the Bible. I can't get away from that. And the problem for us, the problem for me, the problem for anybody else who wrestles with these kind of things, is that intellectually we cannot reconcile those two things. They seem contradictory, but that is our weakness. It's not God's. Has, God has no trouble with this. He can make perfect sense of this. My pea brain cannot. Neither, by the way, can yours. I know there are theologians out there who will tell us that they've got this all figured out. No, they don't. It's not possible. Our brain can't comprehend these 
seemingly contradictory things. I've often found it useful, and I've shared the illustration before, uh, of thinking of this like a railroad track. You're thinking of the two parallel uh, rails of a railroad track disappearing off into the distance. One is the responsibility of man, the free will of man, and the other is the sovereignty of God. They're just going parallel as far as you can see, but they do look like they meet out there somewhere, don't they? And God knows where that is. We can't figure it out. But he does. Thankfully, God's understanding and mind is infinitely uh, greater than mine. I don't want a God that I can completely figure out every single thing. I want a God that's bigger than me. And my God is. This is not hard for him. And it's interesting, isn't it, that there are two doctrines in this astonishing verse, number two. Two doctrines that are the same way. This one about election would fit into that category. And then there's also mentioned here the Trinity, which is another one of those things that we can't totally get our minds around. God foreknew and chose. The Spirit sanctified and set apart and prepared for salvation those who were chosen. And those sanctified obeyed the Spirit and experienced salvation through the blood of Christ. All three members of the Trinity are mentioned there in verse number 2. All three played a role in both sovereign election and human free will. Played a role and play a role in salvation. Did Did God elect? Yeah. We have to believe that. Must we believe? Yeah. Absolutely. Both are 100% true. Both are equally true. I'm reminded of a Sunday school teacher that used to teach here at this church many years ago. He believed that only one of those truths was true. That God chose some for salvation. He did not believe that a person's belief had anything to do with it, but rather that if God wanted to save somebody, he would save them, and that was the end of it. Well, we were having a Sunday school meeting one day, and I mentioned to the teachers that I thought it would be a very good thing if we made sure that in every class we shared the gospel in some way. And we gave an invitation to the kids to trust Christ. Well, he took great offense at this, took me aside afterwards and said, I don't need to do that. We're not, I'm not going to do that. If God wants to save somebody, he'll save them. I pointed out to him that he was going to do that, and he left the church. The simple reality is election is God's part in this thing. Believing in Jesus Christ and trusting Him as your Savior, that's our part in this thing. And both are vitally, vitally important. One of my favorite commentators is Warren Wiersbe, and and when I read how he explained this, I thought, you know, I, I don't think I can improve on that. So let me just read what he says about this. And he's commenting on this verse. He says, We have been chosen by the Father, purchased by the Son, and set apart... By the Spirit. It takes all three if there is to be a true experience of salvation. As far as God the Father is concerned, I was saved when He chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world. As far as the Son is concerned, I was saved when He died for me on the cross. But as far as the Spirit is concerned, I was saved one night in May 1945 when I heard the gospel and received Christ. Then it all came together. But it took all three persons of the Godhead to bring me to salvation. If we separate these ministries, we will either deny divine sovereignty or human responsibility. And that would lead to heresy. Peter does not deny man's part in God's plan to save sinners. In 1 Peter 1.23, he emphasizes the fact the gospel was preached to these people, that they heard it and believed. Peter's own example at Pentecost is proof that we do not leave it all with God and never urge lost sinners to come to Christ. For in Acts chapter 2, his great sermon, he certainly urged people to come to Christ. The same God who ordains the end, our salvation, also ordains the means to the end, and that is the preaching of the gospel of the grace of God, end quote. 
And even though I know I said I couldn't improve on his words, I'm going to try. Because I think there's something else we need to add to that. I think the, uh, the means to the end does not only include the preaching of the gospel, but the believing in the gospel as well. So we'll leave that there. Everybody's confused out of their minds now. We'll just leave that right there. But here's the, here's the thing we, we want to ask ourselves. What, we're asking ourselves, who are we? Well, who are we according to that? We are chosen. We are chosen. Cogitate on that for a little bit. Then he goes on in verse number three, and he says, We are begotten. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Begotten us again translates the Greek word anagonesis, which means we have been given new birth, caused to be born again. Peter was probably thinking back to that conversation that Jesus had had with Nicodemus. You remember that conversation in John chapter 3. Jesus answered and said to him, To Nicodemus, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He said in verse number 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. A couple of thoughts come to mind out of that. I mean, you must be born again. It is the only way. And the promise that came out of that, we read a minute ago in John chapter 3 and verse number 16, that when you are born again, you have eternal life. And so Jesus has told these things to Nicodemus. Peter is probably remembering these things. And now he's reminding his readers that this is what had happened to them. They were among the chosen. They were among the ones who had been born again. Therefore promised eternal life and promised a future. Uh, considering that Peter's goal here, and I think his goal here, uh, is to remind them of who they are and what they have in Christ so that they will have hope and encouragement even in the midst of trials. If that's his goal, he started out pretty strong, didn't he? He started out saying, you are chosen by God. He picked you. That's an amazing thought. No matter where you come down on, uh, on those discussions we had earlier, he picked you. And you've been born again. By God, he gave you a brand new start and he promised that with it comes eternal life. You were born again to a living hope, he said here. That's an endless hope, a never ending hope, a hope that will never die through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus resurrection is his seal, his his proof. You know, I could say to you, I give unto you eternal life. I could say that to you. You'd ask me to prove it. And I would not be able to do it. But Jesus promised eternal life. And then he rose from the dead to prove that he had the ability to do it. So who are we? We are chosen. We are born again. Notice the third thing is in verse number four. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. We are heirs. That living hope he mentioned in verse number three, it includes an inheritance. And uh, Jesus had said something like this in Matthew chapter 25. He said, then the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 32, so now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. In Romans chapter 8, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs 
with Christ. Colossians chapter 3, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. We are heirs. We have an inheritance. When my first wife Beth died, I received a little bit of an inheritance. It wasn't huge, but it was enough to pay funeral expenses and things like that and provide me with a little bit of money left over. And I thought to myself, what should I do with this money? I wanted to do something that would, you know, kind of be lasting, something that I would remember her by. And, and so I, I decided I'm going to go out and buy something that I really want, and I'm always going to remember her when I look at it. And that's how my BMW motorcycle ended up in my garage. It was a result of an inheritance. But, you know, that was several years ago. And since then, a few things have happened to that BMW motorcycle. I'm on my third set or so of tires. I've had to swap out batteries. Somebody banged into it one time and bunged up the paint on the thing. It doesn't quite look like it used to. But isn't that the way things are with earthly things? Earthly inheritances? I mean... Things wear out. They're temporary. They fade away. But look what this verse says about our future heavenly inheritance. This is absolutely glorious. I love this verse may be my favorite in the whole thing. Look what it says. It says it is incorruptible and undefiled and does not fade away. Other translations, uh, I think, make it even clearer. They make me want to shout. The New Living Translation says, We have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. The NIV says that it's an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Earthly inheritances are temporary. Whether money or land or heirlooms, they perish, they wear out, become less valuable. Sometimes they lose all value. But our inheritance in heaven... That which we'll receive when we reach the end of this journey, it's beyond priceless. It's never ending. It's never fading. It's never spoiling. It's ever and always new and perfect. I I do not know if when I get to heaven, my inheritance will include any BMW motorcycles. I don't know if that's true. I'm going to say probably not. But I can tell you this, based on this verse, if so... There would be no flat tires. There will be no wore-out batteries, and there will be no dinged paint ever. And notice what he said here about this inheritance. I think this may be the best part of it all. Our inheritance is reserved in heaven for us. It is there already waiting for us. That's a glorious thought to me. Kathy and I and the kids, we went down last week to see the Ark Encounter and the Creation Museum. And uh, we got to the, to the Ark that morning, and we had not bought our tickets in advance, so we had to jump into the long line, you know, the winding long line. And we stood there, and we inched our way through the winding long line to get up to buy our tickets. As I got closer, I noticed all these ticket windows. And then over here on the left, there was this other ticket window that nobody was standing in front of the line. But every once in a while, somebody would go up to that window. And uh, they would say their name, and somebody would hand them a ticket, and in they would go. Over top of that window, it said, we'll call. We'll call. It was there for those who had already bought tickets and paid. They could come and pick them up. And brothers and sisters, your inheritance and mine is already bought for and paid. And it's waiting right there 
for us. Who are we? We are chosen. We are born again. We are heirs. Hallelujah. Look at the fourth one. Verse number five. We are kept. Who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. Ready to be revealed in the last time. That word kept is translated in some of the translations guarded. And in some it's translated protected. I can't help but be reminded of Beth's prayers. Those of you who used to attend prayer meeting here on Wednesday night when she was still alive. You know that she prayed that every single time. Every single time she prayed for protection. A regular request. And here we're reminded that we are protected. Those of us who are children of God, those of us who are born again, are kept, we are guarded, we are protected by the very power of God. Now, up to this point, Peter's been talking, I think, about mostly future glories, future hope, future inheritance. But this now, I think he's talking about the, the here and now, the present. During this life, God is working to keep us, to guard us, to protect us. And we're protected by the power of God. That same power that could defeat even death at the empty tomb. That same power that could part the Red Sea and deliver the children of Israel on dry ground. That same power that Jesus displayed when he told the wind and the waves to shut up and be quiet. And they immediately complied. That same power that protected Daniel from the mouths of lions and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego from white hot fire. That same power that directed a little pebble from the slingshot of young David into the forehead of the giant Goliath. That same power God used when he spoke into existence this entire world and all its myriad forms of life and its beauties and its complexities and every single star in the universe. That is the power that keeps us. All who believe, all who have faith, are so kept and so protected. Just as our faith brought about our salvation in the first place, so faith continues to be the instrument that keeps us protected in him. Paul had said, we are saved by grace through faith in Ephesians chapter 2. And now Peter takes that further, writing that just as we were saved through faith, we're also kept through faith. Notice verse number 6. He says, in this you greatly rejoice. In this you greatly rejoice. In what? Well, in knowing who you are. That's what. How does one not rejoice when realizing that we are a chosen people, having been born again, having an inheritance that's ready and waiting for us, an inheritance that does not fade or spoil and that lasts forever, being kept and protected by God, who alone controls forever? How do we not rejoice in that? In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while if need be, you have been grieved. By various trials. Now, I think this is Peter's main point in this passage. I think we're getting down to what he's trying to say here. These people were going through some hard times, some trials, some suffering. We've already learned, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that suffering is a key topic, maybe the key topic in this book. Hope through suffering, maybe it would be a better way to say it. 
If these people weren't there yet, they were going to be. Uh, Peter knew that there was suffering on the horizon if it wasn't there already. But notice that where he said their hope is permanent and incorruptible and undefiled and unfading and reserved in all those wonderful words. Look how he described their trials. They're for a little while. For a little while. Verse 6. And even those trials, he said, serve a purpose. And we see that in verse number 7. And that is to bring praise and honor and glory when Jesus returns. Brothers and sisters, we, just like these first century believers, we can expect trials to come in this life. We can expect our faith to be tested. Timothy Keller, who so recently went home to heaven and now knows the reality expressed in verse number 9, he has now received the end of his faith, even the salvation of his soul. He once said this, There is no way to know who you really are until you've been tested. Alistair Begg said something similar. He said an important characteristic of genuine faith is that it does not collapse when it is tested. So we need to expect the trials. We need to expect the tests. Who are we? We are chosen. We are born again. We are heirs. We are a people kept and protected by the very power of God. That's who we are. And what do we have? We have hope. Verse number 3. We have an incorruptible and undefiled and unfading inheritance. Verse number 4. It's reserved for us. We have joy. Verse number 6. Yeah, we might also have trials. We might also face tests. But those are temporary. They serve a purpose only for a little while. One last thing that Peter mentions here, which I think is interesting. In addition to all he's wrote here about who we are and what we have, he mentions this one final interesting thing. He says, we have a knowledge that the prophets and angels did not have. He says that in verses 10 through 12. Jesus said something similar. He said, for assuredly I say to you, many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and didn't see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The Old Testament prophets did not fully understand what they wrote. They wrote as the Holy Spirit was inspiring them to do and if we were to get to second peter chapter one we'd see he explains that more fully they understood that the holy spirit was indeed working in them and uh as they wrote and that they were not writing things for themselves or just for themselves but also for a future audience they didn't understand all that they didn't fully comprehend all that we have the privilege of knowing because we have the completed word of god and we have an understanding, therefore, that the prophets didn't possess, and neither even do the angels of God, according to the last part of verse number 12. There's an old gospel song. I don't know that the theology of the song is entirely correct, as is true with most gospel songs, but it, it, it definitely speaks to this thought. Let me read it to you. It said, There is singing up in heaven such as we have never known, where the angels sing the praises of the Lamb upon the throne. Their sweet harps are ever tuneful, and their voice is always clear. Oh, that we might be more like them while we serve the Master here. But I hear another anthem, blending voices, clear and strong. Unto him who hath redeemed us and hath bought us is the song. We have come through tribulation to this land so fair and bright. In the fountain freely flowing, he hath made our garments white. Then the angels stand and listen, for they cannot join the song. 
like the sound of many waters by that happy blood-washed throng. For they sing about great trials, battles fought, victories won, and they praise their great Redeemer who hath said to them, Well done. So although I'm not an angel, yet I know that over there I will join a blessed chorus that the angels cannot share. I will sing about my Savior, who upon dark Calvary freely pardoned my transgressions, died to set a sinner free. Holy, holy is what the angels sing. And I expect to help them make the courts of heaven ring. But when I sing redemption's story, they will fold their wings. For angels never felt the joys that our salvation brings. Christian, what are you going through today? What trials task you? What troubles bring you pain? What tests do you endure? You see, no matter what it is, here's the answer. Here's the solution. Here's the means of enduring those trials and passing those tests. Remember who you are and remember what you have. Trials are for a little while. But who you are and what you have as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is forever. You are chosen. Picked you. You are born again. You are heirs. You are a people kept and protected by the very power of God. You have hope. You have uh, an incorruptible and undefiled and unfading inheritance reserved for you. You have joy. And you have a salvation that is ready to be revealed when He comes. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. It is well with my soul. On your darkest days, Christian, when you feel beaten down, when you feel tried and tested, remember who you are. Remember what you have. Straighten your crown and walk on for Jesus.